Let's come to the Lord in prayer this morning. Let's pray. Father, we are eager to hear from you. Lord, may you open up your word for us to learn. May we apply in our lives your truths for us. And so may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, everyone is familiar with Superman, I'm sure. Uh, even if you're not a fan of the comic or of the TV show or the movies or the games or whatever, you know who Superman is. You have seen this guy in blue and red before. And I want you now to turn to somebody next to you or maybe type in the chat something that you know about Superman. Okay, something that you know about Superman, whether it's his powers, uh, whether it's his life history, his, his enemies, or maybe his weakness, I'll give you 10 seconds. Okay, just turn to your neighbor or type in the chat. Some, one thing that you know about Superman. 10 seconds. Okay, chances are, uh, what you said to somebody, somewhere, uh, you would have mentioned that he can fly la, or that he's from another planet la, or he wears his underwear on the outside, la, uh, maybe one of those things. But I'm also guessing that somebody would have mentioned that he has an alter ego or they would have mentioned this name, Clark Kent, okay, the reporter Clark Kent. You know how Superman puts on this pair of glasses, okay, he takes off his suit, uh, he puts out a pair of glasses and suddenly nobody can recognize him, even though his face is the same. Uh, but, oh, there's just transparent glass between uh, the eyes and suddenly nobody can recognize him. And so for those of you who don't know his history, uh, even though Superman was born on the planet Krypton, he was found by uh, John and Martha Kent, okay, a pair of uh, farmers, uh, and they raised him as their own son in this small town called Smallville. And so he grew up as Clark Kent, okay? And then one day when he, he, he became old enough, he took on the persona, the identity of Superman. And so my question today is, who is he really? This person, Kalel, is his alien name, la, his name, his Kryptonian name. Who is Kalel? Is he Superman? Or is he Clark Kent? Now turn to somebody next to you again or type in the chat. Who is his true identity? Superman or Clark Kent? Or maybe even Kalel? Now hold on to that thought, we'll come back to it. Now back in March, before the MCO started, I preached from Luke chapter 6 about how we can only truly uh, behave as who we truly are. Right, that being was more important than doing. And today we're looking at an outworking of this principle in the story of Elisha, Naaman, and Gehazi. And the big idea for today's passage is that we need integrity to be the same person in every situation. Let me repeat that. We need integrity to be the same person in every situation. Now, for those of you not familiar with the story, uh, Naaman was the commander of an Aramean army. Okay? And Aram was one of Israel's neighboring enemies. 
Uh, Naaman was a man of great status and position, but he had leprosy. Okay, so leprosy, we, we don't know if it's the same as modern day, uh, what the modern day diagnosis of leprosy is, but it is uh, similar, uh, some sort of skin condition that was infectious and would eventually lead to bodily mutilation. Okay, uh, fingers, toes, uh, nose, that kind of things would start falling off. Eventually, it would lead to death. Uh, also, because the, the, the side effects of all these things falling off and the, the infections and everything. So, it's like a whole package. Uh, a, a lot of uh, gruesome stuff happening to your body, eventually you die. Okay? And so, uh, Naaman is told by his wife's uh, maiden, uh, one of the servants that, that was captured, an Is Israelite girl, uh, that there is a prophet in Israel who can cure him and so he goes to look for him with a letter of recommendation from the king of Aram. A bit strange coming from uh, an enemy nation, but maybe during this time the tensions weren't so high. Lah. So Elisha sends a messenger to Naaman to wash in the Jordan River. Okay, I'm just cutting a long story short a bit. Lah. Uh, but Naaman gets insulted that Elisha didn't come to him directly. Uh, and and uh, what he expected was Elisha would wave his hand over the spot uh, where his leprosy was developing and cure him miraculously like that. And so he says, what is this? He's not coming to me. I'm such an important man. Uh, he asked me to go and wash in a river. The, the rivers in my nation, is they, they are better. Okay, Aren't they better uh, quality rivers? Can't they heal better? And so he's about to stomp off in a rage. But his servants convince him to try washing in the Jordan River. And so he does. And he is healed miraculously. Now, Naaman is now changed. And his tune has changed. And he goes back to Elisha. So now he, he's humble. Uh, he doesn't wait for Elisha to come to him. He goes to Elisha. And he declares that he knows now that there is no God except for Israel's God. And so he tries to give Elisha some of the gifts that he had brought. He had brought along with him. Uh, many gifts, a lot of uh, silver, gold, sets of clothes. But Elisha refuses because that could either be mistaken as payment for healing or that Elisha was accepting credit for this healing that Naaman experienced. And so Elisha was making it very clear that God was the one who was responsible for the healing and not Elisha. And it was purely by God's grace. It wasn't something that could be bought. There were no transactions involved. Now, the rest of the passage was read to us just now. Uh, so we know what happened. Uh, Gehazi is dissatisfied with Elisha's reaction uh, to these gifts that she rejected them. And so he, he, he sneaks away to Naaman and he makes up this story uh, and he ends up getting these gifts for himself, uh, some of these gifts. And he hides two talents of silver which is roughly about 70 kg. So he had, uh, Naaman sent two servants to help him to carry. Uh, imagine, uh, this is like almost uh, my body weight. Okay, uh, almost. <laughs> I'm just a little over. Uh, so about 70 kg of silver, two sets of clothing. Uh, he hides it and then he goes back to Elisha who confronts him and eventually he gets cursed with Naaman's leprosy. And so the issue here is not about the giving or the receiving of gifts. It's not about whether it was right or wrong to receive gifts. 
in this particular instance, it wasn't something that should have happened because Elisha had already re rejected it uh, to attribute the healing to God. Uh, it's mainly about Gehazi's greed and deception that came from his underlying character. That is the issue here. Now, the first thing that we can see is that there is a disconnect between Gehazi's position and his character. Gehazi had a position as a servant of Elisha. Now, the Hebrew word servant literally means a young boy or a youth, and it implies apprenticeship, like how Elisha was an apprentice to Elijah. He was his servant. It's almost like a disciple, same sort of meaning. And so people would have expected Elisha to eventually ex, uh, inherit Elijah's position and status. Oh, sorry. People would have uh, expected Gehazi uh, to eventually inherit Elisha's position and status as a prophet, together with all the miracles that uh, Elisha was able to do, like how Elisha succeeded Elijah and then later was able to uh, perform those miracles. He got a double portion of Elijah's spirit and that sort of thing. Now, on top of that, Gehazi would have witnessed Elisha's miracles firsthand. He was in the best position to be a godly man of great faith, just like Elisha and Elijah. But Gehazi's character, however, looks to be very different from Elisha. When Gehazi went after Naaman to get gifts for himself, he wasn't possessed by some evil spirit uh, or went temporarily insane. Uh, didn't know what he was doing. He was behaving exactly according to who he really was. This principle of you behave according to who you are. Right? You do as you be. Uh, because the true character of a person is defined by who they are when no one is watching. Let me repeat that. The true character of a person is defined as who they are when no one is watching. Uh, earlier I asked you right, whether Superman or Clark Kent or, or Kal-El uh, was his real identity. And so uh, this is a question that's debated by many comic book fans and all that. But my answer, uh, my, what I think is whoever Superman or Clark Kent or Kal-El turned out to be in his fortress of solitude, so this, like his, this place where no one else can go there except for Superman, okay, so nobody else can see what he's doing in there. Uh, whoever he turned out to be in that fortress of solitude, that is who he really was when no one is watching. Maybe a combination of all three. Uh, today's passage reveals Gehazi's character despite his position. There are already hints as to what sort of character he is. Uh, if you look at the previous chapter in chapter 4, if you've been following along with our church's uh, Bible reading plan, you have come across it. Uh, chapter 4, he, he, uh, Gehazi came over to push the Shunammite woman away. Right? When she came to Elisha out of desperation uh, because her son had just died, and so he, he, he just, hey, why are you touching my master? Push, push her away. No compassion. And then Elisha rebuked him. And even though he obeyed Elisha, Elisha told him, okay, run ahead. Don't stop for anything. Go and lay my staff, Elisha's staff, 
on the the boy uh, on, on his face because he was dead to to revive him. Even though he did that, nothing happened, and we know that the we know what role faith plays in God's miracles, especially in healing. Uh, in God's miracles, it indicates something about Gehazi's faith that even though he was following Elisha's instructions using his staff, nothing happened. It tells you something about what sort of faith that Gehazi had. And Gehazi would also later question, uh, later question Elisha uh, how they would be able to feed a uh, hundred uh, with only 20 loaves of bread, a little bit like the feeding of the 5,000. And so Gehazi reminds me of Judas Iscariot, a bit like an Old Testament Judas Iscariot. Somebody who was in the best position to be like his master, but with a very different underlying character. Now today's passage just shows what surfaces from Gehazi's underlying character when opportunity presents itself. And so what was the issue with Gehazi's character? The core issue seems to be what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, that no one can serve two masters. Compare between Naaman and Gehazi. In our passage today, uh, 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 17, Naaman declares his exclusivity for the Lord, right? That the, the Lord, the, the God of Israel would be his master from then on, the only God that he would worship from then on. Gehazi, on the other hand, pretended to have two masters when he really only had one, and that would be his love for money. How do we know that he, he, he had this love for money? Well, other than the fact that he sold out Elisha and mis misused his name in order to get these valuables from Naaman, Elisha also implies that he, he knew what Gehazi was going to do with that money that he had gotten. Uh, in verse 26, he says, Is this the time to take money or accept clothes or olive groves and vineyards or flocks and herds or male and female slaves? So Elisha is implying that he knew that Gehazi was going to use that money to procure for himself olive groves and vineyards and flocks and herds or male and female slaves to basically live like a rich person. The fact that he that Gehazi would lie to Elisha to safeguard his loot, okay, the, the, the haul that he got from Naaman, shows that he had exchanged one master for another. He had exchanged Elisha as his master for the love of money. And so there was something missing in Gehazi's character, and that is integrity. Now there's this quote that's often attributed to C.S. Lewis, but actually nobody really knows who said it. Uh, no one knows where, where it came from. Uh, anyway, this quote says, Integrity is doing the right thing even when no one is watching. Okay? Integrity is doing the right thing even when no one is watching. And essentially, it's the consistency of character in every situation. That you are the same person in every situation, whether somebody is watching you or not. That you live life according to who you are and not changing who you are based on who is watching or based on a certain circumstance or situation. 
If you look at 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 18, uh, Naaman was concerned with integrity. He, he still had to bow in the, the temple of Ramon uh, as his king leaned on his arm and, and bowed as well. Uh, Naaman wanted God to know that although his, his king may have required it, Naaman was still only recognizing the God of Israel as the one true God, as his master. Gehazi, on the other hand, even after returning from his getting his, his ill-gotten gains, he tried to pretend like nothing had happened. Integrity was missing. So how did this happen? How did Gehazi end up here? How did this servant of a great man of God end up in this place? Now, the Bible doesn't record a lot of Gehazi's life, so we can only uh, infer a lot of things. But we can see from today's passage the destructiveness of secret sin. From the progression of today's passage, the events in today's passage alone. Firstly, we see that there is this secret sin. And so the, the, the folly of secret sin, uh, Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, talks about it. It says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And so those who conceal their sins, hide their sins in secret, uh, is folly. Those who confess and forsake them, repent, turn away from them, are wise. Now, why is secret sin so foolish? One, one reason is because secret sin leads to other sins. The thing about secret sin is it's usually allowed to grow unchecked because of our sinful nature. It may start small, but usually it evolves into something more because the only thing that is keeping it in check is ourselves. And we have our sinful nature. That is our predisposition to sin and to continue sinning. And so Gehazi's sin in today's passage starts small. It starts with nothing that he did. It started with a desire. It started with the sin of covetousness. One of the Ten Commandments, you shall not covet. Right? Uh, so when he saw the gifts that Elisha uh, was being offered by Naaman, and so in today's uh, calculation, this is roughly 340 kg of silver. Okay, so this is the amount of stuff that Naaman had brought with him uh, to see Elisha. 340 kg of silver, 69 kg of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. Uh, back then, uh, this sets of clothing are like, wow, grand, probably like the top of the line Armani range, okay, that sort of thing. Uh, no one can afford, only super rich royalty, whatever. So, can you imagine 340 kg of silver, 69 kg of gold, 10 sets of Armani clothing. Uh, Gehazi had probably never seen that amount of money or wealth before in his life. And so just like how we saw uh, two weeks ago, that wealth uh, leads to, often leads to foolishness when that's all you're living for. Uh, so this is what Gehazi was, uh, this is the road that he was going down on uh, in his coveting this wealth. And so this led Gehazi to go after Naaman and deceive him 
by pretending that Elisha was asking for money. Now remember the, the point of Elisha rejecting the gifts was to make it clear that God's healing was not for sale and that God was the one who was responsible for healing. It came from God directly, not from Elisha. But Gehazi cooked up this story of Elisha asking for money uh, because two young men from the company of prophets had come to see him, uh, probably for hospitality reasons. But this, this story is ridiculous because what he asked for is an insane luxury. He asked for one talent of silver. And so calculated, that comes to about 85.5 thousand ringgit worth of silver today. Okay, and by today's uh, silver metric standard. Uh, 85.5 thousand ringgit worth. Uh, just to show some hospitality to two uh, young prophets uh, together with two sets of Armani clothing. Okay, So Naaman might have thought that Elisha was you know, initially just too polite to accept these gifts directly and then uh, now he's like, uh, you know, so he's like, Paisela, no, 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 don't give, don't give. But then later, go already. Uh, okay, I send my servant, I go and get something, not so much, just get a little bit. And so Naaman may have been thinking along those lines when Gehazi came to approach him. And so this would not just uh, drag Elisha's name in the mud and make Elisha seem like actually he, he did one payment. It also robbed God of the glory. Because now uh, the one responsible for the healing is the one receiving payment, Elisha. And so after, after this, so it started with a small sin of covetousness and then to deceiving Naaman. And then after this, he tries to, Gehazi tries to hide his dishonest gain. And then after that, he tries to deceive Elisha when confronted. And so one small sin that started in the heart led to another sin, which led to another sin, which led to another sin, and so on. This reminds me a lot of King David. Uh, if you remember his story, uh, he was on the roof of his palace, right? At the time when kings went off to war, he didn't. So that is already uh, being idle. Uh, he spied a woman bathing on the roof. And that is, uh, you know, he, he, his gaze lingered, okay? So he began to cover that woman. And then he took the next step to ask who, who is that woman. And then he took the next step to actually go and sleep with a woman and then he took the next step when she found out she's pregnant to murder the husband okay so an escalation of sins one leading to another and so secret sin often escalates to other worse sins a secret sin also leads to false justification or a sense of false justification Verse 20 shows us that Gehazi was trying to justify what he was about to do. So when he first coveted those things, he tried to justify to himself. He probably felt that Naaman didn't deserve healing for free. And there is a hint of contempt for this commander of an enemy of Israel. He refers to him as this Aramean. So it's a bit like saying this fella, you know, uh, with disdain. And so whatever his rationalization, Gehazi 
is convinced enough in his own justification that he uses the words as surely as the Lord lives, which is an expression of determination. The same words that Elisha used in verse 16 when he expressed his determination not to accept the gifts. Gehazi is just as determined to get something from Naaman. And so this shows us the importance of the community of believers and their role in accountability and loving rebuke. If you have ever had some sort of disagreement with anybody before in your life, you know, you know that you, you always feel like you are in the right and everyone else is wrong. You know, it's always somebody else's fault. It's never your fault. Uh, it, at, at least... That is our instinctive conclusion. The first thing that we jump to is defensive. Uh, I am right, and this is why I am right. Everyone else is wrong. That is our instinct because of our sinful nature uh, where the, basically we think that the world revolves around us. And so this happens especially for secret sin. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you, you know something is wrong, but because it is a secret sin, and you want to hang on to that sin, you try to find ways to justify it. And maybe even go to passages that may talk about that sin and then try and twist and turn and find different ways to interpret until you can find justification for what you already know is wrong. To convince yourself that it's not wrong. Right? And, and so we, 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 we justify for ourselves why the sin not so bad, surely God will understand, you know, that sort of thing. And so if the sin stays secret, or even worse, if our non-Christian community, our non-Christian friends, or, or colleagues, or, or family members, affirm that sin, if they know about it, and they say, hey, not bad, or wow, very <laughs> uh, respect, you know, that kind of thing, uh, then we, we end up in an echo chamber where we only hear what we want to hear. You know, by our own justifications and the affirmations of the wrong people uh, holding the wrong values. And so we end up convincing ourselves and sinning with conviction. And so that's why we encourage everybody to be part of a small group, which is probably the, the, the simplest uh, organizational form of uh, uh, community within our church, where you can really get to know a person beyond Hello, good morning, and bye-bye, God bless, right? Uh, it can play that role, a small group can play that role of holding you accountable for what you know isn't right. A small group can also play that role of lovingly rebuking you for what you don't know is wrong. And, of course, to affirm you for what you know is right. Now, of course, that takes trust. And trust is only built in close and regular relationship. So whether or not you're in a small group, small group is just uh, something that we encourage. Uh, but even if you're, you, you can also have your own close community, uh, your own close band of brothers or, or sisters, uh, accountability group, whatever you want to call it, Christian friends who you can count on to tell you uh, if you are going the wrong way or to check on you whether you're, you're really sticking to what you said. Now, especially during this time of online church, when we can't really interact with each other so much, 
this is especially a time when we need to be wary of becoming isolated. And so don't be an isolated Christian. Reach out to fellow believers and stay in close fellowship with one another. If someone doesn't reach out to you, you reach out to somebody. Stay in fellowship with one another. Now lastly, secret sin doesn't stay hidden. Elisha confronts Gehazi about what he had done. Uh, we don't know whether it was supernatural knowledge, uh, whether you know it was an out-of-body experience. Elisha was like watching with uh, binoculars. Oh, Gehazi, I see what you're doing. Uh, possible, you know, so many miracles Elisha uh, did. Uh, or, or whether Elisha just observed Gehazi's absence and his body language, and so he just drew, uh, put two and two together, and he knew what happened. Whatever it was, Gehazi's sin didn't stay secret. You see, there's no such thing as taking a sin to your grave. Uh, we are eternal beings. Our sin doesn't end at the grave. Even if our sin is not discovered by others, we are forced to eventually face our sin when God finally confronts us. If not immediately within this life, definitely uh, at the throne of judgment in eternity. Uh, as I was preparing this message, I was wondering why Elisha never called Gehazi out. Uh, surely he knew what sort of character he had uh, while he was with him. He spent so much time with him. My guess, scripture doesn't uh, explicitly say, but my guess is that Elisha was giving Gehazi opportunities to repent. I don't know how many of you remember being confronted with the truth as children. You know, when your, your parent found out uh, something that you had done wrong, okay, and they come to you and uh, they ask you, eh, <laughs> and you know, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Uh, I, I don't remember exactly what I had done, uh, but I, I, I do remember being confronted by my parents. I don't remember whether it's my mother la, or my father. La, some parental figure, roughly, that's what I remember. But I do remember the, the, the words, what did you do? Tell the truth, right? Those, those two magic phrases. What did you do? Tell the truth. <laughs> and I remember, <coughs> excuse me, I remember feeling like time had slowed down and I was faced with a choice. Okay, it's a bit like, uh, uh, a bit like, who wants to be a millionaire? Uh, a, B, C, D, what do I do? <laughs> uh, and time is ticking. So do I tell the truth and get into trouble? Or do I try and you know, lie to get out of trouble and risk getting into even bigger trouble if the, the lie is discovered and the, the real truth surfaces? Uh, and so that's probably how Gehazi felt when Elisha asked him, where have you been, Gehazi? Time probably were frozen for him and he's faced with these two options. Should I tell the truth? Or should I try and cover it up? And so both Naaman and Gehazi were faced with truth. Naaman was faced with truth that God's way was better than his way. And so Coming back to the healing of Naaman, Naaman could have chosen to ignore Elisha's instructions 
to go and bathe in the Jordan River, uh, he could have just stomped off and continued expecting his leprosy to only be treated the way he expected, looking for a holy man to wave his hand over the spot to heal it or to bathe in what he considered would be a better quality river okay, than the River Jordan. And so he was faced with this truth and he had a choice of how to respond. He responded by choosing to, to obey the instructions of Elisha. Gehazi was faced with the truth of what he had done when Elisha asked him, where have you been? Which is very obviously, I know what you did. Uh, he was given the choice to confess and repent or to try and lie his way out of it. And so Naaman's response resulted in healing, not just in the physical sense, but also in the spiritual sense when he came to know the one true God. Gehazi's response resulted in leprosy, in basically inheriting Naaman's leprosy, something that he would never be able to keep hidden. And so just like most of the messages of the prophets, today's passage is both a message of warning and a message of hope. It's not a message for us uh, to be, you know, be holy, do not sin. That ship has sailed for all of us. Uh, whether it is in word or deed or, or attitude or motivation, none of us have escaped the clutches of sin and often secret sin. Rather, today's passage is a message for all of us who have sinned. It's just a matter of how much integrity we have before God to recognize to what degree have we sinned, in what way. Are we still keeping it hidden? And so this is a message of warning for the unrepentant. For those who do not want to respond to God's truth by turning towards Him and away from their sin. Not a warning that you know, we would experience the curse of leprosy, uh, that God would judge us and bam, we, we contract a disease, that sort of thing. Uh, no, but for those who haven't accepted Jesus, the curse of remaining eternally separated from him, which is worse than any leprosy. And for those who have accepted Jesus, uh, being unrepentant, uh, it, it, being in unrepented sin, uh, the curse of breaking of fellowship with God, the source, God who is the source of all wisdom and blessing, that in our stubborn, unrepented sin, we are broken off from the fellowship of God. It's also a message of hope. Hope for the repentant. Like King David, after his sin with uh, Bathsheba and, and his murder of Uriah the Hittite, uh, after the prophet Nathan confronted him with the truth of what he had done, he responded with repentance. And so that message of hope for the repentant, that turning back to the one true God in faith brings spiritual cleansing and restoration, as it was for Naaman. The consequences of our sin may remain, but we face it, we face these consequences from a much better position, a position of close fellowship with God and with integrity. <laughs> 